Welcome to the Reason Hope podcast. In this podcast, we explore the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith. We seek to show how the central hope found in Jesus Christ is not only rational, but that the Christian worldview makes sense of our experience, our deepest longings, and our intuitions about the world. Thanks for listening, and we hope today's episode is both encouraging and challenging to you, whether you are a believer or a skeptic. Welcome to today's episode of the Reason Hope Podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. In this podcast, we explore the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith. And right now, I'm in a series looking at uh, evidence for the existence of God. And this is the second episode in that series. So if you have not listened to the first episode yet, uh, I would highly encourage you to do so uh, before continuing with this one, uh, because these these episodes build upon each other, and they're sort of designed to be listened to in order. Last time, I looked at three uh, evidences or uh, arguments for the existence of God, and today I'm just going to be looking at one other uh, type of argument for the existence of God. But before I get into that, uh, I just want to review a couple things from the last episode. So the first is really to understand that when we're talking about evidence for God's existence and we're talking about arguments for God's existence, it's really important to understand that this is what we would call a cumulative case. So a cumulative case is if someone is making a cumulative case type argument for a given point of view, it's going to be one in which multiple lines of evidence and argument support the final conclusion. Uh, This is a little bit similar to how Um, arguments are made in courtrooms where there's multiple lines of evidence. There's many different factors to consider that might uh, strengthen the final conclusion. So this this kind of uh, way of approaching the evidence for God's existence is a cumulative case. So this means that there really isn't sort of one knockdown argument that's just going to settle the issue for everyone who considers it. Um, It's really more of a... um, overall case of evidence that builds, and each argument builds upon the last one, and you end up with um, a a stronger overall case when you consider the wide breadth of evidence that there is for God's existence. And so in this series of episodes, I am providing one one version of a cumulative case. Um, The other thing, just to remember about this, would be the very concept of evidence itself. Evidence just simply can be thought of as reasons for believing something. It's what would justify a given belief that you might hold. Um, and it can justify, evidence can justify a, a given belief or a set of beliefs that you may hold. Um, and it's also important to see that when you're considering whether or not there's evidence for something, you really have to take into account what kind of evidence you should expect. And this is really going to differ uh, depending on what you're looking for. So when we're talking about evidence for the existence of God, this is going to be a very specific kind of evidence. And sometimes people can, can expect the wrong kind of evidence for God's existence. It may be evidence that they have decided in their minds is the only sufficient evidence 
that they will accept. As in, somebody's not going to believe in God unless he physically appears to them in some way. Um, or if, 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 if they see some kind of strange phenomenon happen that they uh, make up as just kind of this out-of-the-blue standard. And considerations like this, I think, are a bit short-sighted in that they, they are wrong expectations and wrong standards to have when thinking about evidence for God. Um, the, the kind of evidence that I'm pointing to is we need to consider what the universe would be like if there is no God, and we need to consider what the universe may be like if God exists, because these are two very different universes. So throughout this series, I am pointing to key features of reality that I think are much better explained by the existence of God than by the idea that uh, God doesn't exist. And um, this gets into how we might reason this way. So it's essentially the principle that you need an adequate cause to explain the effects in question that you're considering. So um, in the last episode, I talked about the origin of the universe was one thing. So when you're considering the origin of the universe, there's only a limited amount of options that could serve as causes for the effect, and the effect in that case would be that the universe came into existence. So we need to consider what would be an adequate cause, the most adequate cause to explain whatever it is that we're considering. Another part of this is going to be the criteria of what we would call causal adequacy. And this is just another way of saying that if you're going to uh, posit an, uh, like God as an explanation for something, then you need to consider why the explanation of God is, is adequate to explain that effect. And, and so um, you have to ask questions like, does the cause that I am uh, suggesting have the necessary nature and properties to explain the effect in question? Now, one thing I pointed out in the last episode when it comes to the origin of the universe is that some people have suggested that the universe has come into existence from nothing. And I argued that that is not an adequate cause to explain the existence of the universe because it's very easy to see that we don't get something from nothing. That goes against a very fundamental piece of reasoning and the way that we interact with the world and know that the way the world is. Something does not come from nothing. And so in that case, to say to posit nothing as the cause for the origin of the universe fails the test of causal adequacy. It's not an adequate cause to explain that effect. And when you're thinking about causal adequacy, what this allows you to do is you're able to eliminate uh, competing alternatives as explanations for a given effect. Um, Another example from the last episode of, of this idea was when I considered consciousness and what consciousness is, and how it's immaterial, Um, it seems in principle that something like that cannot be explained as a result of just mere matter. You need something more than just physical matter to explain the uh, origin of consciousness. Now, it's also important to see that these types of arguments for the existence of God are not what are commonly called God-of-the-gaps arguments. And a God-of-the-gaps argument is one in which someone says, 
uh, we don't know how this could have happened naturally. And so because we don't know how it could happen naturally, we're just going to plug God in as an explanation for whatever it is that we're considering. And this is a, a, a critique that many skeptics like to throw at arguments for the existence of God, especially when it comes to things like the design uh, argument, the argument from design, which is also something that I talked about in the last episode. But it, it's really important to understand that the types of arguments here that I am considering are based on what we do have good reason to believe about, one, the insufficiencies of natural explanations to explain things like where the universe came from, the the design that we see in the universe, and consciousness. So that's part of it. All the natural explanations that have been posited uh, fail to explain it. They're not adequate. And we have good reasons to think, in principle, that no natural explanation could could explain these things. And so that's part of it. But we also have positive reasons to to think that the existence of God better explains these features of our universe. And so when you have a proper understanding of these arguments, to try to accuse them of being God of the gaps arguments or as, um, you know, kind of lazy explanations is just to fail to understand them. So those are just some preliminaries um, as I build upon the last episode. In the last episode, I considered an argument uh, from the origin of the universe, the design of the universe, and the existence and nature of consciousness. And in today's episode, I'm only going to be focusing on morality. And we're going to be looking at what morality is, and I'm going to be looking at three key features of morality. And then we're going to look at some ways that uh, Atheists have tried to explain this, these features, and then we're going to look at why the existence of God provides a much better explanation for these features of morality. So overall, in this episode, I'm going to be arguing that morality is a significant and extremely important feature of our universe. And if, if, uh, if atheistic explanations for this fail, if they fail to explain morality in its fundamental attributes, and the existence of God provides a better and more sufficient explanation for morality, this provides good reason to believe in the existence of God. So to start off with, what is morality? Well, morality basically deals with the nature of what is right and wrong. But how this is cashed out, as in what, what is right and wrong and how we might know it, um, this is going to vary, as any reading in the field of ethics is going to show. If you pick up different ethics textbooks, you're, you're going to get some of the similar perspective, but you're also going to get differences. Another interesting feature about morality, an important feature, is that it's, it's unavoidable. Everybody faces morality every single day. We face moral decisions um, in our workplaces, in our families, all over the place. And so everyone deals with it, and this makes it a very significant area, I think, to explore as it relates to the question of God's existence. Because if morality is so unavoidable, and if it's so personal, then it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting area to, to ask whether or not this provides good evidence to believe in God or whether uh, secular alternatives can, can explain it. And this may not be any indication that there's a God. 
And I think also consideration of moral arguments for God um, hit closer to home. When you're thinking about things like the origin of the universe or the design or, or even consciousness to some extent, these are things that people might be able to sort of push out of their minds a little bit. They might not have to consider them quite as closely, and they might be able to distract themselves from considering those types of questions. But with morality, you really can't do that because morality is a personal thing because we face it every day we encounter it. And I think all of us uh, deal with uh, these key features that I'm going to be talking about. So for that reason, I think that the moral argument is one of the most powerful arguments for the existence of God. Now, I can't consider every facet of a moral argument for God in this one episode, and there's different ways that one can be presented. But the way that I'm going to approach this today, like I said, is going to be looking at uh, three key features of morality and then showing how I think those three key features are better explained by the existence of God than any secular alternative. So, the first key feature of morality is going to be moral value. Now, when I'm talking about moral value, I'm talking about objective moral value. And this is going to refer to the intrinsic good of something. So if the, the difference between objective moral value and a kind of subjective moral value would be that um, if something is objectively valuable, it means that that thing is valuable whether or not I believe it is or whether or not I personally think it is. Uh, so the value is intrinsic to the thing being considered. It's not dependent upon what people think. And I think a very clear example of this kind of value is intrinsic human value. So this is the idea that human beings are valuable in and of themselves, and they're not simply means to another end. And this is popularly kind of conceived as most people recognize that you should not treat other people as means to an end because that's using them. And so most people would agree you should not simply use other people for your own self-centered ends. You should treat them as ends in and of themselves. You should treat them as, as uh, if they have value. And of course, this kind of thinking is connected to the idea of human rights. If people have real human rights, this means that they have some sort of inherent dignity and value uh, that means that you shouldn't mistreat them in any way. So the idea of intrinsic human value and human rights is, is very closely tied together. Now, this view seems intuitively obvious, um, and a lot of times you can tell what are very obvious truths about the world based on the way people react to certain situations. And this is very clear to see with intrinsic human value. Uh, we can think about moral atrocities throughout history that have been committed against certain groups of people. Uh, you can think about the Nazis and the way that they mistreated Jews and, and other groups of people that they deemed uh, to be less human. You can think about radical Islamic terrorists who uh, murder people because they don't believe the same way that they do. You can think about uh, sex trafficking and how uh, women are used and abused. These are all moral atrocities that we rightly see as 
evil because we would say they violate fundamental human rights and they, they degrade people. They go against the inherent dignity that people have. Another way to kind of see this truth would be to think about how we don't really have a problem with putting a price upon animals. We, we buy pets from uh, the pet store. Uh, prices are put upon dogs, cats, and uh, various household pets that people have. And there doesn't seem to be anything inherently wrong with purchasing uh, an animal in this way. But if we encounter the situation where a human being, where a price is put on a human being, and a person is sold like this, this is a different situation, and we recognize that, once again, this is violating the inherent dignity and value that human beings possess. So this view, I think, is intuitively obvious, but the question when we're considering the nature of morality is, why is this the case? Why do we believe this about human beings? And do human beings have this kind of intrinsic value, or is it something that we just attribute to ourselves? So we need to ask, what grounds this kind of value for human beings? And I think there are only two broad options um, that are available to us. So one would be that human value is somehow created by us. This would be the view that, in some sense, humans are valuable because we simply agree that we are. In other words, there, there has been a consensus of opinion about this in some way. The other option is that human value is given to us. And this is the view that intrinsic human value comes from outside of us and that, that it may have been bestowed on us in some way. So if we take this first option, that human value is somehow created by us, uh, for many reasons, this is not an adequate explanation. If you try to locate, first of all, intrinsic human value in some sort of agreement, some kind of social agreement among human beings, the first thing that this may point to is just the fact that it seems obvious that humans have this kind of value. And so it, it would seem obvious that we would agree to such a thing. Um, but notice that... Um, just because this may be intuitively obvious to us, and people may agree that humans have some kind of intrinsic value, this doesn't explain why human life is valuable in this way. It only says something about our perception of it. And we need more than that to ground the idea of intrinsic human value. Because again, there have been many examples throughout history of one group of people uh, thinking that another group of people is less valuable. So slavery is an obvious example of this. And sadly, there's also a growing trend to see Down syndrome people uh, this way as well. So just because this belief is obvious, that doesn't explain why we think it's so. It doesn't ground it. Another thing to consider here is that just because we value something, this doesn't make it truly valuable or even good. Uh, for example... Some people value the practice of sex trafficking, but that is, it's easy to see that doesn't make it valuable or something good. We would say that sex trafficking is an evil institution, and just because some people happen to value it, maybe for the money they can get from it or for other reasons, this doesn't make it something valuable or even good. What I'm getting at is that intrinsic human value is it's an objective value, and by the very nature of the case, if all you have to explain intrinsic human value is some sort of social agreement, if that's all you're appealing to, 
you have to see that values that that stem from these kinds of agreements, just pure agreement or pure consensus, they don't create objective value. It, it, it may say something about the, the culture or the group of people who made the agreement, but you can't get objective value from a pure agreement like this. And that's what we need. We need objective value because intrinsic human value is an objective value. And if, if it's not, then all it is is a subjective opinion that can be overridden uh, if some other culture or group doesn't think that another group of people is intrinsically valuable. Now, some other examples of, of, of secular ethical theories. So I'm going to be considering a few secular ethical theories. And any time that you have an ethical theory, eventually you're going to have to try to make some sense of whether or not humans are valuable and in what way. And so these two ethical theories that I'm looking at, um, I'm going to try to show that while they might point out some things that are good and right, they fail overall to explain intrinsic human value. Uh, and, I, and for that reason, I think they're deficient because intrinsic human value is, is I, I think, a very important feature of morality. So the first theory is something called egoism. Egoism is an ethical theory that says the ethical life is one in which we always act within our own self-interest. Um, that, that's key to get. It's one in which we always act within our own self-interest. That's the soul guiding principle. And the thought here is that if we live this way, it will lead to cooperation with other people. It will lead us to treat others as if they are valuable in and of themselves. Because overall, this is going to benefit us in the long run. Um, it is operating off of kind of a rule of reciprocal treatment or um, treating others the way that you would want to be treated. So the idea is that if I go through my life and I treat other people the way that I would want to be treated, then they're going to reciprocate that. And this will create cooperation. And if I treat them as valuable, they're going to treat me as valuable. And I think that our self-interest is, is important, um, but to call it the sole guiding principle for every ethical decision we make I think is a problem because you run into the idea of living a completely self-centered life. Um, I think that's one issue with this. And it may be true that if you treat other people the way that you would want to be treated, this will work out better for you in the long run than if you did otherwise. That seems to be an obvious truth. But if we're talking about whether or not this provides a real explanation for intrinsic human value, I don't think egoism can do the job. Um, it can account for objective human value and dignity. Because notice, just because you choose to believe that other people should be treated as if they have inherent value and dignity, this doesn't make that true about them. It just is more of like a practical behavior that you're going to adopt. But it doesn't tell you whether or not people really do have this kind of value. So merely believing or claiming that people have this kind of value and dignity doesn't make it so. So that's egoism. Now, another ethical theory um, is utilitarianism. And this view basically says that the morality of an action is always determined by how much it increases uh, utility for the human social group and community. Now, utility, that term, the way it's used can be defined in various ways um, in this ethical theory. But 
you'll see it described in such terms as uh, human flourishing, uh, well-being, maximizing pleasure over pain, and various descriptions like that. So when we say that this theory is is uh, arguing that every time we make a moral decision, we should be thinking about whether or not that decision will create the most uh, human flourishing or human well-being than the alternatives. That's what it's getting at. So we had the idea of, we'll just say, human well-being. We should always act in a way that maximizes human well-being in every moral decision that we face. Now, that sounds like a good idea, and it's not that it is not a good idea. It's just that, like egoism, this theory doesn't, it can't serve as a full-on explanation for morality, even if it may get some things correct. This, this theory says that the, it's, it's the consequences of our actions that always determine the morality of our actions. And one, one problem kind of comes from this very point, because it seems that there are some actions that, regardless of what the consequences are, we either should do them or we should not do them. So one example of this could be, say you're in a position at a company, and you find out that you can steal money from this company in a way that no one will find out about and in a way that actually won't harm the company. You can pretty much get away with it. And in fact, it'll benefit you. It'll contribute to what you perceive to be your well-being. Should you do that or not? Should you steal the money or should you not? And I think most of us would say it would still be wrong for you to steal the money from the company you work for, even if there, there seem to be no, no bad consequences, even if no one would ever find out, even if this is not going to do any financial damage to the company, uh, and even if you may think it, it, it would benefit you, this still does not make the action morally okay to do. Another example would be uh, Corey Tim Boom, uh, who hid Jews from the Nazis. So uh, Corey Tim Boom was a Christian her family was Christian, and they they hid Jews from the Nazis in order to protect them from being captured and taken to concentration camps. And they were putting their family at great risk by doing this because the consequences ended up being that Corey and her family were taken to a concentration camp themselves, and most of them died. Corey did survive, uh, but obviously that's a horrific experience to go through and truly... Um, dire consequences for their family in terms of losing their their lives. So if we're only considering the the consequences of our actions, it doesn't seem like in that situation that contributed to Corey Ten Boom and her family, their well-being, however we might define that. It actually ended up in them undergoing a great deal of harm. But I think we would recognize that they still did something courageous and noble in trying to save the lives of Jewish people from the Nazis. So those are just a couple of examples to show that it's not always the case in morality that the consequences of our actions are the sole thing that determine whether or not the the action is moral or not. Now, when we start considering this theory more, um, another problem is that there doesn't seem to be an inherent connection between an action maximizing uh, human well-being and that action at the same time still being just or even fair. And there's a good example of this that's given by a philosopher named David Baggett. 
and it's drawn from a, um, a short story that's called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And this is how David Baggett describes this story. So he says, quote, The story describes a utopian society whose inhabitants live blissful, fulfilling, and peaceful lives. They experience no hardship or pain. All members cooperate and are enabled to reach their full potential. As the story progresses, readers learn that the happiness of the community depends entirely on the horrific mistreatment of a small child kept locked in darkness, immersed in filth, and left to its misery. End quote. So I think that you can, you can see in that kind of a scenario, it seems like human well-being is certainly being maximized for this utopian community. They seem to be getting along. They have blissful, fulfilling, and peaceful lives. No hardship or pain. They all cooperate. They can all reach their full potential. Sounds like human well-being to me. But if the well-being of this community depends upon a small child basically being deprived of all human rights and tortured and mistreated, we have to ask, is that a just or fair situation? And I think we rightly react to that and say, no, it's not. It, it wouldn't matter if the entire world experienced that level of um, human well-being. If one person is being horribly mistreated like that, it doesn't justify uh, that situation because you have an individual who is being treated as if they have no value and dignity. And they're being treated as if they have absolutely no rights at all. But if utilitarianism is a theory as an ethical theory, is correct, then you would have to say that there's not really anything morally wrong about this because human well-being is being maximized, even if one person has to pay the price for it. So what this brings out is that the wrongness or the rightness of an action on utilitarianism as an ethical theory, it's always judged by an appeal to the consequences for the community and not the individual. That's exactly what has happened in this uh, scenario given in the short story. So this means that individual people do not have inherent rights or value, and any type of value they may have is bestowed on them by the community. Um, but, but the problem here is that if the rights and value are not intrinsic to individual people, they can be overridden in cases just like this. So that's a very serious problem with uh, utilitarianism, at least a secular version of it, because you have nothing to ground the inherent value and dignity of individual people if your only criteria is about maximizing human well-being. And of course, there's the question, how do we even define human well-being in the first place? And who gets to, who, who gets to decide what the true definition of that is? So another way to, to raise this same point is to ask a question like this, is it wrong, is it morally wrong to eliminate uh, the Down syndrome population or, or other disabled people? Some, some have argued, or you could make the argument, um, that people who, who are disabled like this place a burden upon everyone else to take care of them. 
and they don't really contribute to the community and they're just more of a burden and we would be better off by eliminating them. And that may be some way that someone conceives of human well-being. And now, obviously, I think that's a, a position we would react rightly against and say, no, that's morally wrong. People should not be treated that way. But notice that on a secular vision of ethics, a purely secular vision of ethics, which says that people don't have this inherent intrinsic value, regardless of their ability to contribute, regardless of whether or not they have Down syndrome or are disabled in some other way or not. If you have no way to ground an intrinsic value for people, then you can't argue against that and say that it's really morally wrong to to do that. You can say that you don't prefer it or that you don't like it, but you can't say that it is objectively morally wrong. And I think the problem here is that we clearly perceive that it is objectively morally wrong. We clearly perceive that people have uh, an inherent type of value that goes beyond their ability to contribute to society in any way that might be deemed uh, beneficial. So, I think that I think that's a serious problem. I think secular visions of ethics have a very hard time making sense of intrinsic human value. So if we turn to a theistic explanation, how does theism provide a basis for intrinsic human value? Well, God is personal and he's created human persons in his image. And so we we share a significant resemblance to God as persons. God is personal, and he's made us personal. And God is also the source of all goodness and value. And so our value is given to us as individuals from him, because he's made each of us in his image and made us unique. Now, some people may dismiss this as not really explaining anything, as it's just theological. Um, Some people may feel that that's just kind of positing God as an explanation. But Notice that what I said at the beginning of this episode is that it is the reasons that we have for thinking that God is a better explanation than secular alternatives that shows the strength of theism to make sense of morality. And so when we talk about how theism provides a basis for intrinsic human value, this is not just an assertion. It's not just an appeal. The reasons given in the very nature of this explanation. And it goes back to God being personal. It goes back to the fact that God is a being who can ground objective value, whereas secular visions of morality and humanity can't do that. Um, and I think these are very significant reasons. And again, you also have to compare the explanation of God for intrinsic human value to the alternatives. And the alternative here would be a godless universe and what the nature of that universe would be and what it would say about human persons. So I think that the existence of God um, provides a much better explanation for this inherent value and dignity that we attribute to human life far better than secular alternatives. And I, I think that when we encounter the intrinsic value and dignity of other people, particularly this language of human rights that we use a lot, um, I think that's a pointer, a powerful pointer to the fact that there is a transcendent source for 
this kind of value, um, and that we're not just we're not just living in a universe where human beings are a product of mere biological forces alone. That there's a personal God behind it all. So now that we have considered uh, this first piece or this first significant feature of morality, which was intrinsic human value, um, I want to move on to the second, which is something called moral obligation. And I want to illustrate the the idea of moral obligation again from David Baggett, um, and he provides uh, this example quote: "Suppose you come across a child who was just hit by a car. He's in terrible pain, and nobody else is around to help. If you don't provide help to the child, his life will clearly be in real danger." You have a cell phone, and it would be quite easy for you to call for an ambulance. Do you have a moral obligation to make the call? End quote. Now, what that example, I think, illustrates is that it presents us with a situation where we're confronted with a moral decision, a very significant moral decision, because you have someone's life in danger. Notice how that presupposes uh, intrinsic human value that we should care about the life of another person, even if we have no relationship to them at all. But we're confronted with this moral decision. Now, I think most of us in that situation would say, we do have some kind of obligation to make the call for an ambulance so that they can come and and save this boy's or this child's life. I think there's just intuitive force to that. So we do have some kind of obligation there. Another illustration would be from uh, Stephen Evans, another philosopher, and he presents us with a different sort of scenario. And um, so he says this, quote, suppose it is the case that there is someone in my city who desperately needs a kidney to survive. Let us assume that I have two good kidneys, could donate one without significant risk to my health and that my kidney would be a good match for the one who is in need. In such a situation, if I donate the kidney, the result would seem to be a very good one. And there is no doubt that such a decision on my part would be a morally good thing to do. Few people, however, would argue that in such a situation, I would have a moral obligation to donate the kidney. It looks as if to generate a moral obligation to donate the kidney, we need something more than the goodness of the outcome of the act, end quote. Now, that's a little bit of a different example, and I think what it brings out um, is that while we may, we may have certain moral obligations in different situations, you can't judge a moral obligation um, simply based on the outcome. So just because something is good, like donating a kidney to someone who is in need, just because that would be a good thing to do, that doesn't necessarily mean you're obligated to do it. In the situation with the child, it would certainly be a good thing to call for an ambulance. But is it the case that just because the outcome is good, that provides you with a moral obligation? Now, to to go back, I think the force of that kind of situation confronts us with the fact that we we feel we do have a moral obligation. Now, before moving further into this, I want to point out just some some overall features of what a moral obligation is, uh, because this idea can be um, people could get confused 
about it. So the first thing that I want to say is that when we're talking about a moral obligation, we're not simply talking about a feeling of being obligated. Now, you may feel obligated in certain situations, like the the child hit by a car. You might feel like you have an obligation to call an ambulance. But, but it seems like that even if you were in that situation and you had no emotional reaction to it at all and you had no feeling of, of, of being obligated to help the child, you would still have some kind of obligation to do it because people would say that, that you did something morally wrong by failing to act to save another person's life. So uh, that's the first point. A moral obligation, what we're talking about, is not just a feeling of being obligated. It is a compelling and binding reason that you may have to either do or not do something. And when, when we start thinking a little deeper about what a moral obligation is, I think we can see that there's something sort of inescapable about it. it it's, it's something that confronts us in certain situations and decisions that we face. And it has this authority about it. And that is perhaps the most important feature of what a moral obligation is. It's this notion of authority. We feel as if we are being confronted by an authority. And again, even if you don't have that feeling, other people recognize that you were under an obligation. Moral obligations apply to everybody. It doesn't matter what culture you're in. It doesn't matter where you are. Um, They they apply at all times and are, they're, they're universal. They seem to be transcendent in some way. And they come with this kind of moral demand upon us, this rightful demand. And that's why people can be charged with guilt for failing to abide by them. And moral obligations also seem to have a feature of impartiality. Um, so like that, that means that it doesn't matter who you are, what status in society that you are, uh, what culture that you're in, moral obligations in certain uh, ways confront all of us. So in that way, they're, they're impartial. And another feature of this would be that, um, that moral obligations, they're, they're not just about doing something good. As we already said, it's not just about the good outcome. Um, it's, we encounter situations where we seem to be morally obligated to do something good for other people simply in virtue of the fact that they're persons. And so, again, this presupposes some kind of intrinsic human value. Now, those are important features just to get clear in your mind, thinking about the concept of moral obligations. And those two scenarios can sort of bring out what this might look like practically. Now, we have to ask, uh, what explains these features of moral obligation, especially the idea of authority? So if we're going to go to secular ethical systems that try to answer this question, we really only have uh, two broad categories of secular ethical explanations. And so the first one might be that someone tries to explain moral obligations from human biology or psychology. So it's, it's something in human beings and in our development that can account for moral obligation and how this confronts us. Now, the second uh, category would be some sort of social contract. Um, that some agreement in society has been made to place ourselves under certain obligations for uh, certain other reasons. Um, so if, if those are the broad categories, I want to move into one 
secular thinker who has tried to develop a theory of morality that, that would make sense of moral obligation. And this is uh, Sam Harris, who's an atheist, and he wrote a book uh, a while back called The Moral Landscape. And in this book, he's trying to do, um, he, he says he's trying to show how science can provide us with a basis for morality, that we don't need God or religion or anything like that to make sense of morality. We can do this purely from a scientific perspective. And the, the way that he attempts to do this is that he argues that morality is all about maximizing human flourishing or well-being. Notice that that is a utilitarian ethic because that's what utilitarianism is all about. We should try to maximize human well-being. So the problem here is going to be that Sam Harris and, and, and thinkers like him, they rightly recognize that, that something like human well-being is a good thing. That seems to be pretty intuitive. But when you're looking for a, a real explanation for morality, that doesn't really answer the question. Just to point out that something is good doesn't explain why it's good. And this is especially the case with moral obligation. So um, Sam Harris can have this, this theory about morality, uh, but it doesn't explain about how a moral obligation arises from what is good. So just because you can point to human well-being and say this is a good thing, this provides no foundation uh, for anyone to be morally obligated to bring about human well-being. And again, we have to ask what human well-being consists of and who gets to define what that is. Another thing here is that to, to identify something as good is not the same thing as to explain why it's good. This is an important distinction in philosophy that I think a lot of secular uh, thinkers, they make a mistake here when they're trying to explain morality. And it's the distinction between uh, epistemology and ontology. Epistemology is, in philosophy, it is the study of knowledge, how we come to know what we know, and what justifies our beliefs. And ontology is the study of being and existence and the, 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 the very nature of reality. And so if we're thinking about uh, from uh, the, the standpoint of epistemology here, Sam Harris is right to point out that human well-being is a good thing, and it seems intuitive that we know this. So that's on the level of epistemology. But his explanation doesn't get to the level of ontology. It doesn't tell us why we are obligated to bring about human well-being. It doesn't provide a foundation to explain um, what gives humans this kind of status in the first place versus some other species here. And it's just, it's just really important to see here that just because something is good, this does not by itself provide a moral obligation to bring it about. Stephen Evans has a good example to uh, show this point. So he says, suppose, for example, that a law enforcement officer can prevent a race riot in which hundreds of people would be killed only by surrendering one innocent person to a vigilante mob. Even if a better result would be obtained by such an action, it is anything but clear that the law enforcement officer has an obligation to give up the innocent person. 
it seems more plausible to say that the officer has an obligation not to do this, end quote. So in that situation, the police officer could do something that would have a, a, a good end result. He could prevent a race riot in which hundreds of people might lose their lives by surrendering one innocent person to some mob that's going to kill them. But it, it seems very obvious that the officer is under no obligation to bring this about, even if it would be a good thing. Because, again, you, are, you would be um, mistreating one person in just trying to bring about some other good course of action. And um, so just because that would be a good course of action, it doesn't mean that the officer is under an obligation to bring it about. And like Stephen Evans pointed out, Anyone who's thinking rightly about that scenario would recognize that he, if he has a moral obligation at all, it is a moral obligation not to surrender an innocent person to a mob. So I think overall, Sam Harris and others who have similar approaches to morality like him, they, they assume things they don't have a foundation for, and here it would be the value of human persons. And it just seems really hard to make sense of that. Uh, on atheistic naturalism. So that is more of a utilitarian approach in, in trying to make sense of moral obligations. And overall, that doesn't provide a foundation for any sort of moral obligation. So if we move into um, another category of uh, explanation for moral obligation, it would be that someone might suggest that moral obligations are the result of a social contract or agreement among human beings. Now, at this point, you have to ask a few questions. Was this some kind of a real agreement that took place? Is it an actual agreement? Or is this just some hypothetical type agreement? So we need to know what the nature of the agreement is. But, but in either case, if it was an actual agreement or a hypothetical one, you have to ask, how, how can either type of agreement create a binding moral obligation? upon people. Um, th- this is the core problem with this way of thinking about morality, is that it doesn't seem like a mere consensus of a group, whatever that group happens to be, if it's a culture, if it's a society, if it's some elite group in one society, it doesn't seem like that has the power to create a binding authoritative moral obligation upon all people. It just says something about what that group of people thinks. And if someone is going to argue this, they, they really do have to explain that because we're trying, to, we're trying to explain moral obligation. And another feature of this is that it seems like if this is the origin of morality and moral obligation, then it seems like this agreement would be a conditional agreement. So this would be that we are going to agree to abide by this way of approaching morality because this will benefit society. Uh, but, but what happens when other people don't abide by it? Or if they're in a situation where they can, uh, quote, break the agreement and this goes undetected by anyone else? So what if there's a scenario where someone is able to break the social agreement of morality and the supposed moral obligations that they're under and not be found out, not be detected? And what if in some way breaking that agreement actually serves to benefit them? Um, now, the, the point with asking these types of questions 
it's just to show that by the very nature of the case, if, if your explanation for morality is just in some kind of social contract, whenever that happened, wherever it happened is very unclear, this type of explanation just simply cannot create the binding moral obligations that, um, that we're trying to explain here. And since this is a significant feature of morality, then this account fails to adequately explain it. Now, how does the existence of God provide a better explanation for moral obligation? Well, I think in many different ways. Um, But the first place to start is just to see that if an essential feature of moral obligations is this idea of authority, that there's some authority behind them, theism does provide this binding authority for moral obligations. And ethical systems that are based in a naturalistic worldview, where there is no God, don't. They don't provide any kind of binding authority. What ends up happening with secular ethical systems is that they water down morality in a way that reduces them to mere practical goods. And even with evolutionary explanations for morality, which I'll get into more in the next section, but even if someone is going to try to explain morality through evolution, these explanations still can't generate uh, moral obligations because there is no binding authority. There's no transcendent source of authority over and above humanity to create the kind of Uh, moral obligation that we need to explain, and the kind that we encounter when we're faced with moral obligations. Now, on a theistic account of moral obligations, the authority uh, that is behind these obligations is, of course, going to be rooted in God's authority. Now, some people may say, what makes God an authority? And I think an easy way to start answering that question is to say, by virtue of the fact that God is God. When we start thinking about the kind of being that God is, we see that God possesses supreme power, supreme goodness, and knowledge, and that he's perfect in love, and that he is just in all his ways. And if God has created human beings in his image for a good purpose, and that good purpose is relationship with himself— And if he desires our flourishing and our well-being, then not only does God hold the the requisite authority behind moral obligation that we feel, we, we, we sense this moral accountability, and once again, even if someone lacks this feeling, it doesn't mean that they that they're not morally obligated. Otherwise, people who feel no guilt or, or, or shame for their crimes couldn't be held accountable. They couldn't have a real guilt, but we recognize it. They do. So God is, by the very nature of who he is, he possesses that kind of authority that is over and above humanity. And he desires our flourishing and our well-being, and we're held accountable to him. Now, another important feature of moral obligations is that when we start thinking about what those are, the very concept of obligations only makes sense in relation to persons. So you and I are not morally obligated to a boulder or to inanimate objects or anything like that. The moral obligations that we encounter in our lives are, are always within 
relationships to other people. So we have moral obligations to our family, uh, to our friends, to our employers. So if moral obligations only make sense in relation to persons, then it makes perfectly rational sense to, to see that the moral obligations that we experience and that we're under in the world in various situations are ultimately related to our accountability to God as the person behind it all, as the one who has brought us into existence and as the one to whom we are accountable. And another important feature of this is that a lot of times people people misunderstand the the concept of being morally accountable to God, um, and and they see God as imposing uh, rules upon people that aren't good, or they see relationship to God, um, whatever that might look like, as something that is just reducible to a, a list of do's and don'ts. And I don't necessarily have time to get into that whole topic here, but I just want to point out that if God is is good, and if he's created us for relationship with himself, and if his commands to us are uh, in accordance with our flourishing and our well-being, then that is the proper way to think about our accountability to him. Our accountability to him directs us in the right direction, which is towards himself, and he is our ultimate good. And that's just a really important point to understand uh, when you're thinking about the relationship between God and morality and uh, our accountability to him. So I think overall, moral obligation is another extremely important feature of morality. And I think that the existence of God makes much better sense of it than secular alternatives. And in that way, moral obligation points towards the existence of God instead of away from it. Now, the last feature of morality that I want to consider here is moral knowledge. And I think the best way to start thinking about it is to ask the question, do we have knowledge of moral facts? Now, a moral fact is going to be, it's going to be captured in a, a statement. So a moral fact is a moral claim about the world that is either true or false. So uh, if you take this statement, it is wrong to torture children for the fun of it. Now, is that a true statement expressing moral knowledge? And if so, how, how do we know that? I mean, it's like intrinsic human value. There are certain statements that, that seem obviously morally true or uh, morally false, as in they're either right or wrong. And most people, when they're thinking rightly about this, would agree that it is wrong to torture children for the fun of it. That is a state of affairs that should not obtain. It is morally evil. But notice that that is a claim to know something moral about the way reality is. And if we're thinking about the question of moral knowledge and what explains it, you have to ask, how do we know this? It's, it's not enough to just say, well, that seems intuitively obvious to me. You have to have something that, that justifies that. There was also a, a sad case of uh, a situation where four young adults tortured a mentally ill person and streamed it live on the internet. Now, that's a really sick situation. And again, we, we, we have an aversion to that, and most people are going to identify that as evil. But again, is it is it wrong? And is it 
is that a case of a true moral fact about the world or is it just something we we believe or something that we prefer so you really do have to ask how we know these things are wrong and most people again are are going to see them as uh, foundational moral truths but you have to ask what justifies this kind of knowledge. And if we're considering a universe where there is no God or a universe where there is God, it's going to have big implications for um, moral knowledge and our claims to know certain things are right or wrong. Now, I said I would get into um, evolution, evolutionary explanations for morality, because frequently this is a popular route that uh, skeptics, atheists are going to take. If they're asked what explains morality, they're going to make some kind of appeal to Darwinian evolution as an explanation. And, 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 and some people may be able to give more of a detailed explanation than others, but um, it's a common route to go. And so I just want to talk a little bit about if this explanation from evolution is truly how we have gotten what we call morality, it has um, implications for our ability to even know the truth of moral statements that we make. And in fact, it, it undermines them. So to try to show this, you just have to start thinking about, okay, if Darwinian evolution, this process, this biological process, it operates upon natural selection, genetic mutation, this is how organisms have developed over billions of years. If that is true, and we live in a universe with no God, then our moral sense, so, so this ability that we seem to have to perceive the morality of certain situations, like it's wrong to torture children for the fun of it, that moral sense that we have as human beings, it is going to have its origin in solely in the account of biological evolution, if there's no God. So it's a universe where all there is is matter in motion. Um, you have this process of biological evolution. This is where human beings came from on this view. And so you have to, that, that, that's all the resources you have to explain morality. So we have to start there. And that is very significant. That's a very different scenario from starting from the place of uh, believing that there's a personal God who has created us. So the next step here would be to say that if this view is true, it would seem that we could have evolved with a completely different set of moral beliefs than we have. So whether it's the statement, it is wrong to torture children for the fun of it, or rape is wrong, or sex trafficking is evil. These are all moral claims about states of affairs in the world. But if evolution is true and there's no God, there's really nothing that seems that it would prevent us from having evolved with the complete opposite moral beliefs. So humans could have developed a moral sense that told them rape was okay, and that there's nothing wrong with torturing children for the fun of it if it entertains you. And there's nothing wrong with sex trafficking. So we could have evolved to believe that those things were morally okay. Now, the implication here is that we don't have a real connection between our moral beliefs about the world and moral truth about the world. Those are very different things. 
The moral beliefs part tells us something about ourselves. It tells us something about our psychology. It tells us something about what we prefer, what we like or dislike, or what we find morally offensive. And moral truth is the idea that there are certain things that are built into the way the world is that are either right and good in and of themselves, apart from what people think about them, or they are morally wrong and evil, regardless of what anyone thinks about them. So that's the difference between moral truth that, de- that, that is mind-dependent, it depends upon what people think and believe about it, and moral truth that is mind-independent, that it's true, it's good, it's evil, regardless of what people think about it. A very clear example here would be that the Nazis thought they were doing something good by eliminating Jews and other groups of people they deemed to be less human. And at the trial at Nuremberg, the Nazis were held accountable for their actions on an international scale. And no one who put them on trial accepted the perspective that what they did was okay just because they thought it was okay. Notice that that is an appeal to a moral truth about the way the world is that is independent of what the Nazis thought. There is a clear objective standard that is being appealed to to make that kind of condemnation of what the Nazis did. And the problem here is that if we live in a godless universe and evolution is the explanation for where our moral sense came from, you have no transcendent standard outside of humanity to say that certain things are morally evil and certain things are morally good regardless of what people think about them. And that's because there's no real connection between our moral beliefs and moral truth. And this is the case, again, if we just think a little bit deeper about this, what is the process of Darwinian evolution concerned with? If, if we can say that it's concerned with anything at all, what would be the, the, the purpose or the end goal if even there is such a thing? And it seems like that it would be solely concerned with, with survival, the survival of the, the, the biological organism, you know, in this case, human beings. This process is all about survival, and that's how human beings got to be where they are. You have natural selection, you have genetic mutation, and these things are all about uh, pushing forward the survival of the species. But if the main focus of evolution and the goal of it is just survival, then it has no connection to moral truth. Evolution is not concerned with moral truth. It's only concerned with survival. And that's a problem for claims to know moral things about the world because it doesn't seem like there is any necessary connection between uh, this kind of biological survival of human beings and what is by nature morally good. Another way to put this might be to say that biology can't make anything bad in and of itself. And biology can't make anything good in itself. It might tell you why you prefer or uh, why you dislike certain things. It, it, it might tell you something about your preferences. It might describe to you your preferences but it cannot tell you whether or not anything is really good or evil 
in and of itself, apart from what anyone prefers. Now, this point is made very clear by Michael Roos, who is an atheistic philosopher. And so he says this, quote, The position of the modern evolutionist is that humans have an awareness of morality because such an awareness is of biological worth. Morality is a biological adaptation no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. End quote. So Michael Ruse there is just drawing that point out. He's saying if all you have is biological evolution and you have no transcendent reference point for morality, then all it is reduced to is a function of biology, and there's really no deeper meaning behind it. You can't get to objective moral truths from biological evolution if that is all you have. And so you see the point here is that there has to be a connection between our moral beliefs that we hold and whatever it is on a given view that would make morality true. And if there is no connection like this, then you have no justification for thinking that your moral beliefs are true. And so on evolution, at, at least evolution conceived of in an atheistic universe, this actually undermines our moral knowledge because we have no grounding for moral truth. And if you have no grounding for moral truth that can tell you um, that certain things are good and certain things are evil in and of themselves, that this is some kind of feature of the way the world is, apart from what people believe or think, then you've lost any foundation for moral knowledge. Because in order to have real moral knowledge, there has to be something that either makes it true or false. And if all we're left with is our subjective moral sense or beliefs, then we don't have that. Maybe a simple way to try to sum that up would be to say that biological evolution in a godless universe, it reduces morality to something that is solely inside of our heads. It's just a part of our subjective awareness and psychology. But it's not really out there in the real world. It's, it's, it's not really a feature of the world. It's just something that we happen to believe, but it's nothing more than that. And that is all that evolution can get you as an explanation for morality. Now, some people might try to redeem this sort of explanation by saying, could you say that survival, human survival, is an inherent good? And if evolution aims at survival, then wouldn't our moral beliefs be shaped towards that end? And some people try to say this explains the connection between our moral beliefs and moral truth. But notice that this really doesn't solve the problem because all we would have to do is ask, well, what, what makes human survival 
this inherent good. And that seems to presuppose that there is some kind of value, some sort of intrinsic value to human life. And atheism doesn't provide the resources for making sense of this kind of intrinsic human value of human life. But I think that, I think theism does. The existence of God makes perfect sense of this. Um, if, if we see that God has created us in his image, that he made us for communion with himself, and that his ways are for our flourishing, that can, that can provide a strong foundation to make sense of human value. But biological evolution in an atheistic universe just can't get you there. And so this explanation doesn't, doesn't work. And one, one final thing to think about it, if you are appealing to evolution to explain morality, another problem that you're going to run into is that evolution is a, it's a scientific uh, theory that attempts to describe something that has happened in the past. It attempts to describe human development as a biological organism. But, but that by itself is what is uh, called uh, an is. It's a description of the way that things may have occurred. But you can't get any real moral obligations from a scientific description alone. Science doesn't create moral value and moral obligation. It can maybe describe the material world and provide insights into the material world, but it cannot get you to an objective moral value. It cannot get you to an objective binding authoritative moral obligation. It can just describe the material world for you. And this is sometimes called the fallacy of trying to get uh, an ought, that is objective morality, uh, objective moral obligations, real moral knowledge from an is, a mere description. Another way to try to frame this would be to say that morality by its very nature is prescriptive. It, it, it seems to tell us how we should live and things that we should do in certain situations, or things that we should not do. There's, a, there's an oughtness behind it. So morality is prescriptive in this way, whereas if all you're left with is biological evolution, um, you just have something that is descriptive. It just describes uh, something that has occurred in the physical world, but that cannot get you to morality. So that's another problem with evolutionary explanations. And there's Many more that I don't have time to get into in this episode, but I think that's good enough for now to show that if you try to explain morality from an evolutionary perspective, then it undermines our ability to know moral truth, and um, it doesn't provide moral obligation. Uh, it, it doesn't provide objective morality. Now, how does the existence of God provide grounding for moral knowledge, our ability to actually know moral truth. Well, again, this goes back to the, the idea that God is a personal being who has made us in his image, and that we share that likeness to him in our being, that we're persons. And God has given us the capacity to be aware of and to apprehend moral reality, the moral truths about the universe, and to know the rightness or wrongness of certain actions. And moral truth itself is rooted in the character and nature of God, who is perfect love, goodness, and wisdom. And so our moral sense and awareness is rooted in how he has 
made us. It's built into the kind of beings that we are. Notice you do have to go back to that when you're thinking about morality. You have to ask what kind of beings are human beings? Are we just the products of a materialistic biological process? Or are, are, we, are we more than that? Is there more than just matter in the universe? Is there a person behind it all who's created us? Now, one place in the New Testament in the book of Romans offers uh, sort of a pointer in the direction that all people have uh, this moral sense. And so this is from Romans chapter 2. Paul says, quote, So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, and their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus, end quote. And so all Paul is saying there is that he's saying that regardless of whether somebody is Jewish, because he was writing to Jews and non-Jews who were Christians in, in Rome, in the ancient world, he's, he's saying that even if someone is not a Jew and they don't physically have you know, God's law, like embodied in the Ten Commandments, or the Jews had the Ten Commandments. Uh, Paul's saying that you don't need to actually have the Ten Commandments to know this moral law that is built into the universe. We have our conscience. We have an awareness of what is right and wrong, and um, everyone is held accountable for the way that they live because God has built this into us. He's built it into the world, and moral truth flows from his very character and nature uh, as a perfect being. And and so, again, there's a lot more that we could get into, but that's just a very basic explanation as to why God makes sense of our ability to know moral truth, because God serves as the grounding for uh, objective moral truth that is out there in the world. It's, It's not just dependent upon what people believe or think about it. It's independent of that. And that is the kind of grounding for morality that we need to make sense of it and to make sense of these features that we've been considering. So, there are a variety of ways uh, that, that you could frame a moral argument for God. And, and in this episode, I've only scratched the surface of it. It's a huge topic. But I've tried to show that God's existence makes much better sense of certain key features of morality that we all encounter. That's the intrinsic value of human persons, its moral obligations, and its moral knowledge. And I think God's existence does a much better job than secular alternatives that try to account for these features of morality. Now, moral arguments for God, they build upon the cumulative case for God's existence in that they show that God is good and that he cares about human flourishing. Um, And the other arguments will show things like that God is supremely powerful, that he's intelligent, and that he is a person to whom we can relate. Now, moral arguments for God, like all the arguments, are are not knock-down arguments that will convince everybody who considers them. But this doesn't mean that they're not good arguments. And I think, arguably, no philosophical argument attains to this Standard. There's not any philosophical argument out there that convinces every single person who 
considers it. So that can't be the standard that we set up for uh, considerations uh, for arguments for God. I think what these arguments can do is uh, they can rebut the charges that belief in God is uh, irrational and uh, the charge that there's no good evidence for God's existence. And I, I think that for the person who is truly open to exploring the question of God's existence, they can serve to set up a case for the existence of God, which can then be evaluated against the alternatives, such as secularism. And I think that's what people should do. I think that you consider you should consider the best arguments on both sides and uh, make up your own mind about it. And so as I go through this series, uh, in, in the, this series of episodes, looking at some of the arguments for God's existence, this is only one way to present them, and uh, there's much more that could be said. But I hope at least by the end of this series that you have a sense for what a case for God might look like and the, the strengths of it. And I hope that it gives you some good things to think about. That, that's always my goal in these episodes, Where, wherever you happen to be at in your beliefs. I just want to offer you something good to think about. And so I appreciate you taking the time to, to listen. And if you really enjoy the show, uh, please feel free to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to it on App, Apple Podcast. Uh, tell, tell others about the show who you might also think be interested. Uh, ReasonHopePodcast.com is the website. Uh, ReasonHopePodcast at gmail.com is the email address. You're more than welcome to send comments, questions, uh, things like that. And uh, remember that there is reason for hope in Jesus Christ.